the unsurpassed penetrating and perfect truth is seldom met with even in the hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So today we're going to talk about Shantideva's chapter on diligence or Viviga, the fourth of the six parameters. Yesterday we had patience and today we have diligence. They balance each other. You need them both. And he says, Thus with patience I will strive with diligence, for in such diligence enlightenment is found. If no wind blows, then nothing stirs and neither is there merit without diligence. And then he says, Diligence means joy in virtuous ways. Its contraries have been defined as laziness, an inclination for unwholesomeness, defeatism and self-contempt. Feeling we're not good enough, you know, that we can't find liberation, it was just an excuse. We don't want to give in to it. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, you know, forget it. A taste for idle pleasure and a craving for repose and sleep. No qualms about the sorrows of samsara. Laziness indeed is born from these. A taste for idle pleasure and a craving for repose and sleep. Well, if we're sick or old, we might feel tired all the time. And this is not what Shantideva means by laziness. What he means is, no qualms about the sorrows of samsara. This is much more of an impediment. Not seeing the consequences of our indifference. Losing the aspiration for enlightenment, for following the way of the Bodhisattva. Or sometimes we don't feel very aspiring. You know, we don't always feel great and filled with vigor all the time. But we still need to nourish our aspiration as best we can, to trust our pure intention to follow the way of the Bodhisattva, never to give up, never to think we can't do it. As Dogen says, of all foolish notions, this is the most foolish of all, thinking we can't do it, because it just novels us from the get-go. So, says Shantideva, reflect on death. Death will swoop on you so swiftly. Gather merit till that moment comes. For even if you then throw off your indolence, what will you do when there is no more time? Oh my goodness, I'm about to die and I haven't done all these things I meant to do. You know, too late. And then he describes some of the torments of the hells to goad us into making great efforts and not to waste our time. Well, thinking about impermanence is a classic way of helping us to nourish our aspiration. You know, we don't know how much time we have left in this life, no matter how old or young we may be. We just don't know. Nothing's guaranteed. So, to remember, one of these days, we will die. And what will we have to take with us then? Only our own good and bad karma. Our merit or absence of merit. So, he says, 
take advantage of this human boat, this body. Free yourself from sorrow's mighty stream. This vessel will be later hard to find. The time that you have now, you fool, is not for sleep. Well, you have to bear in mind that Chanterday was mostly talking to himself to get himself to get on with the training. So it's himself he's calling a fool, it's not us. That's why he's so forceful. Because he's just talking in a lot of this stuff. He's talking to himself, getting himself to do something. You know, what? You, don't, you haven't, have, still haven't got it? When are you going to do something? Because we're a bit more blunt, usually, when we're talking to ourselves than we're talking to somebody else. Or so we hope. So taking advantage of this human boat and freeing ourselves, yourself from sorrow's mighty stream because this time is not for sleeping and indifference. The time we have now is not for sleep. It doesn't mean straining ourselves excessively, going without sleep and rest when we need it. We need to practice patience as well as diligence. As I said, they balance each other. You can't just be forcing things all the time. But use this precious life well, he says, this opportunity to practice the Dharma and follow the way of the Bodhisattva. Don't waste it, you know. This vessel will be later hard to find, this body. You might not get another human body for some time. You just don't know. It can be a while. And he says, training can be hard, but it's nothing like as hard as the sorrows of samsara. So we might as well bite the bullet and get on with it. Because when we train, we do find joy. Ceasing from doing harm, having wisdom, and gaining merit, helping beings, they make us happy, you know. It's not misery. It may be hard, but there's joy in it. Mounted on the horse of Bodhicitta, which puts to flight all mournful weariness, what lucid person could be in despair, proceeding in this way from joy to joy? I love that. That's the horse of Bodhicitta. There's no half measures here. He's getting on his horse and he's charging off. And yet... You know, we may have moments of despair and despondency. And Chantideva does talk about these. It's not just all joyful. But there's moments of despair and despondency and indifference. They come and go. And we just keep on going. We stay on our horse of bodhicitta. We don't get off and wander about. Keep going. Keep on the way. The forces that secure the good of beings are aspiration, steadfastness, relinquishment, and joy. Aspiration grows through fear of suffering and contemplation of the benefits to be attained. So we cultivate these qualities of aspiration, steadfastness, keeping going, relinquishment, letting go of clinging, and joy. Practicing joy is a practice. And Shantideva says he's got many faults and he hasn't trained himself or helped other beings, so he's got to make great efforts now because he's wasted a lot of time. So, you know, some of us can relate to this. Aspiration, so the sage asserted, the Buddha, is the root of every kind of virtue. Aspiration's root, in turn, is constant meditation on the fruits of action the results of our karma, of what we do now. If we sincerely do good, then good will accrue to us. 
and if we do harm, the knives of misery will cut us down. He talks at length about the knives of misery and all the miseries that come to us if we don't live a good life. And, as he said, it's all right to rest. We don't have to be you know, galloping on our horse or bodhicitta the whole time. We can rest sometimes. If impaired by weakness or fatigue, I lay the work aside, the better to resume. But we don't get off our horse. We just slow down sometimes, take some rest, take a break. It's okay because we have patience as well as diligence. And we can trust that we don't have to be striving all the time. Otherwise, we just wear ourselves out. So, and as he says at the end of the chapter, I've left a whole lot out, by the way, just as flaxen threads waft to and fro, impelled by every breath of wind, so all I do will be achieved, controlled by movements of a joyful heart. And I like this image. It helps to counteract that sense of willful striving that we could think is what he's intending. You know, just, I've got to do it. I've got to do this. I've got to do it right now. But just the flaxen threads wafting to and fro, impelled by every breath of wind. You know, just, oh, what's good to do now? Right. It's not mindless and it's not wandering. It's just, what's good to do now? Listening. What's the best thing to do? Impelled by movement, controlled by movements of a joyful heart, you know. What's good to do here? To be still, to consider what's good to do and to do it with joy, a joyful heart. Well, now we have the chapter on meditative concentration. It's the fifth of the six paramitas. And this is the longest chapter of all. And some of it is related to monastic practice, so I won't go into it at great length. But like all the other chapters, it's full of good advice for all of us. And he says, Cultivating diligence, as just described, in concentration I will place my mind. For those whose minds are slack and wandering are caught between the fangs of the afflictions. I like that. If we don't pay attention to our mind, those afflictions will come up and bite us. And Shantideva talks about the joys of renunciation, leaving the life of the world behind. So we need to remember that he's a celibate monk, talking to other celibate monks. But he says, clinging brings suffering, and that is true for all of us. We can all relate to that. Clinging brings suffering. And he tells us to stay away from childish people who act from selfishness and ignorance. And that's good advice for everybody. Just, Just don't make... To get too close to people who are childish and ignorant. Sometimes you are close to them. They're family members, people you've, you know, siblings or people you work with, however. But, you, but to just be careful, to take care, not to think I'm better than them, I won't, you know, I'm not childish and ignorant. But to, um, to take care, be careful with what we do, and not making judgments about people. Oh, what a childish and selfish person. But just to be careful, practice wise discernment. He says, The wise have no attachments. From such cravings, fear and anguish come. And fix this firmly in your understanding. All that may be wished for, 
will by nature fade to nothing. This is impermanence. Everything will pass away. Other people, riches, fame, even our own body, it's all going to go. And then he gives lurid descriptions of the death and decay of the body in his usual no-holds-barred kind of a way. It gets worse. He talks about desire. Well, you must remember that he's talking to celibate monks here to help them to overcome desire, especially sexual desire. Because these are monks who are trying to, just struggling with desire. So with all of this, no matter what he says, just remember there's a kind and compassionate purpose in all of this. And he says, in this and in the world to come, desire is the parent of all woe. Desire brings suffering. But then he says, the object of desire, the pretty person, you know, is just a heap of bones and it'll die and decay. That face for which you languished so. Look, this mass of human flesh is just the fare of carrion beasts. And he goes on at length about carrion beasts and the sack of bones and all that. Describes the body as just a sack of filth, lusting for other sacks of filth. And he goes on at some length, and I won't go into all of it. But if you think he's been blunt before, (laughs) it ain't nothing to what he's doing now. And all of this is to help people, especially young monks, to see the empty nature of desire. It's not just gratuitous, horrific descriptions of filth and death and decay and so on. And in fact, it's quite traditional. The unattractiveness of the body is a classical subject for meditation. And this is meditative concentration, especially in the Theravada tradition. You may remember Ajahn Chah, who told his monks, young male monks, oh, there's somebody you long for left at at home. Ask her to put a little little bit of her excrement in a small bottle and put a stopper in and send it to you. And every time you think of her, just open the bottle and take a sniff. Well, you don't need to actually do this. The thought is sort of voting that you wouldn't have to <laughs> follow it through. Just thinking about it is enough to put you off. But I thought it's, it's so classically Ajahn Chah, completely down to earth, you know, kind of like Shantideva. No, no um, you know, messing about. So Shantideva's lurid descriptions are just a skillful means because sexual desire is an extremely strong force, especially when you're young. And he's applying a very strong and very traditional antidote just as the Buddha did, and is motivated by compassion, as always, not just being gratuitously gruesome, compassion at the bottom of it. And it's not just lust that causes suffering, it's all kinds of clinging to wealth, possessions, and so on. Where are we? I've lumped over a whole lot of pages here. There we go. They indeed, possessed of many wants, will suffer many troubles, or for very little. They're like the ox that pulls the cart and catches bits of grass along the way. They don't get much, they're just grabbing. For sake of such a paltry thing, which isn't rare, which even beasts can find, tormented by their karma, they destroy this precious precious human life so hard to find. This precious life, people ruin it by striving for useless things, you know, because all that we desire is sure to perish, he says, on which account we fall to hellish pain. For what amounts to very little, we must suffer constant and exhausting weariness. 
People strive so hard to get stuff. We see it all the time. Getting stuff. Just surviving is one thing, but getting more and more stuff, you know, it's, it's a... You know, it's a pity, actually, to use this life just getting stuff. Because you can't take it with you when you die. And it doesn't make you happy. It might make you a little more comfortable. Being miserable in comfort, as Reverend Marty used to say. So, revolted by our lust and wanting, let us now rejoice in solitude, in places empty of all conflict and defilement, the peace and stillness of the forest. I don't think Shantideva was just talking about a physical forest. I think he's talking about letting go of wanting things, grabbing onto stuff, and living simply. The less you need, the less you want, the less stress you have, generally. The peace and stillness of the forest, the peace and stillness of a simple life. Not always easy to have a simple life. And especially, you know, Letting go of selfishness. This is, part, this is the basis of actually relinquishment. Letting go of our selfishness. And thinking that we're separate from other beings. There's me and there's everybody else. So he describes meditating upon the sameness of oneself and others. Which is a, a practice that actually we do in our own way. Strive at first to meditate upon the sameness of yourself and others. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. Thus be guardian of all, as of yourself. Don't just think about yourself. Help everybody. Think of everybody. We're all essentially the same. Seeing others is not separate from oneself. So when they suffer, we suffer too. And we're all rather familiar with this. You can't be happy knowing that it's at the expense of another person. And we talked about this a little the other day. Even a very selfish person who grabs something from someone else can't really enjoy it, you know? There's no peace of mind there. And I think maybe there's something in them that knows, no matter how selfish or deluded they may be, that this isn't actually the right thing to do. This isn't right. I can't really be happy with this. Deva talks about the different parts of the body. They're all distinct. They all have their names and labels and so on. But they're all one body, you know? They're not separate at all. And in the same way, all beings are one. And they're all like me. They want to be happy. We are all one body. And in some ways, we're all pretty much the same. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants suffering. And we all go about it in different ways, some of them more skillful than others. And therefore, I'll dispel the pain of others for it is simply pain, just like my own. And others I will aid and benefit, for they are living beings like my body. No difference, just the same. We're all one, no separation, so I'll try to help other beings as I try to help myself. We try to help other beings, we also can offer merit to them. That's another thing we do. And offering merit works because... We're not separate from other beings. We're all connected. So that's why merit works, because we're all connected together. And we offer merit to somebody, or just wish them well, or offer them a kind word, or think of them with kindness. It's helpful, because we're all connected. And conversely, if we think of somebody with hatred, 
or resentment, that kind of cuts us off in more ways than one. But thinking kindly of others, wishing them well, offering merit, really helps us all to, helps us to know that connection. And it helps them too. It helps our state of mind also, our generosity of heart. Then Shantideva gives an explanation of the illusory nature of the self, what we think of as me. He talks about us in a number of ways, but now he's really going into it. Well, I won't go into it all because it's logical analysis. And for some of us, logical analysis is very helpful, and for some of us, less so. And again, this is the traditional subject for meditation, just analyzing where is there a self in this body. As Reverend Master Ji, he was a young person talking to Dr. Saratisa with his little skeleton. Where is the self? Is it in this arm? Is it in this leg? And so on. And there's a point to all of this. What we think of our, as our self is not the reality. So, says Shantideva, there's no one to experience pain, for who is there to be its owner, who owns this pain? Suffering has no possessor, therefore no distinctions can be made in it. Since pain is pain, it is to be dispelled. What use is there in drawing boundaries? There is still pain. Pain is pain. It's not saying that suffering doesn't exist. But we don't have to distinguish between our pain and the pain of other beings. It's all one body. So we try to help to dispel all of it, not just our own suffering, and not just the suffering of others, both equally, dissolving that seeming barrier between ourselves and other beings. Pain is pain. It is to be dispelled, no matter whose pain it is. Because sometimes people think of this emptiness, meaning nothing exists, so it doesn't matter what I do. But that's not the thing. That's not what it's about at all. There's still suffering, and we do our best to alleviate it, knowing that the self, or if we think of the self, is not the reality. Shantideva gives a description of a practice of exchanging self and other, mentally putting oneself in somebody else's shoes and thinking what it must be like to be them. And there's different ways of practicing this and different ways of describing it, and I won't go into them. But it's a way of letting go of one's own selfishness. And we can do this in our own way. Just seeing another person and considering what their life must be like. Seeing a homeless person. Seeing somebody begging. That's a really hard way to make a living, no matter what we may think of, of it or of them. Being somebody who is begging, that's not a happy life. you know. Or somebody working on the road when it's really hot. Or thinking of somebody we know who's had a great loss. What that, maybe that, what that's like. And so on. So many ways that we can just consider what it's like to be that person. You know? Sympathy. Feeling with them. Getting beyond our own little self and our own little view of things. We're caught up in our own little mind. you know, And just seeing that person by the road. Oh, it's cold. It's raining. And there they are sitting out here without any shelter. It's selfishness that creates misery for us, for other people, both now and in future lives. To be selfish is a misery. We don't become happy when we're selfish. 
and it does not bode well for us if we act selfishly. Well, our future karma may not be as good you know, if we try, try to help other beings, see them with sympathy and help them as we best can, or at least offer merit, do what we can and not see them as separate from ourselves, but as just like ourselves, then there's merit in that for them and for us. Well, there's one verse that sums up all of this. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. In a nutshell, Shantideva is very good at putting things in a nutshell. That's perfect. I'm going to read it again. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. Or the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. We had a we had had Dharma talks and um, discussions in a reading group actually about a meeting that the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu had. They had a conference together about joy, and there was a book written about it describing it called the Book of Joy. And in that, they talk, this is exactly the conclusion they come to, of course, exactly that. That all the joy comes through wanting happiness for other beings. But if we just want happiness for ourselves, we're miserable. Exactly that. All the harm with which this, with which this world is rife, all fear and suffering that there is, Clinging to the eye has caused it. What am I to do with this great demon of selfishness? No. And he says, To free myself from harm and others from their sufferings, let me give myself to others, loving them as I now love myself. We do love ourselves as well. It's not that we completely, you know, abnegate ourselves. We just, you know, I'm just a, a drudge, a slave. He does talk like that a bit, but I don't think that's really the intention, to treat other beings as we would treat ourselves, because we're not different, we're not separate. Because if we say, oh, they matter and I don't matter at all, we're still creating a separation. But if we just love other beings, let me give myself to others, loving them as I now love myself, loving all equally, nothing different, nothing separate. I've gone through pages and pages and pages that we have not gone through because otherwise it would take weeks. And finally he says in this chapter, Thus, to banish all obscuring veils or ignorance, I'll bend my mind from the mistaken path of selfishness and constantly upon the perfect object I shall rest my mind in even meditation. The perfect object? Well, tomorrow... We'll talk about wisdom. Homage to all the Buddhas in all worlds. Homage to all the Bodhisattvas in all worlds. Homage to the scripture of great wisdom. <laughs>